Check, check, check. Oh, good afternoon, everybody. It's Monday at 4 p.m. around, and uh, welcome to Chatting Between Takes. Uh, if my voice sounds terribly impressive right now, it's because uh, I've actually been battling uh, this cold, um, actually strep throat, so I got the antibiotics and all that, but I basically moved everything I could this weekend and spent it in bed. Uh, it was fantastic, actually. You know, being sick is always an interesting thing because... I sort of run at uh, what I would consider to be a pretty high pace, you know. My motor's always turning and I'm always thinking about what I have to do and, you know, I have a lot of different jobs and income streams and I really love them all. I value them all. So, uh, including this, by the way, which, uh, you know, if you're new to chatting between takes, uh, there's no charge for this. There never will be. But uh, if you like what you're listening to, share it with a friend and, uh and we'll build up a little something here and then maybe we'll get some sponsors and all that and then we can, uh, you know, hit a broader audience and, and keep the role going. But in any case, um, yeah, I'm always kind of working on these different things and then Friday's when I kind of got hit. And I just was reading, I really wanted to go to the gym and I've been going on about how I got this part coming up where I got to take my shirt off. By the way, down to 189 and not even just from being sick, right before I got sick, I had that little drop where I talked about, you know, sometimes when you're consistent, it feels like nothing's changing, and then boom, you get a little change. For the newer listener, I'm trying to drop from 192 to 182, and uh, <laughs> if I don't do it by this Saturday, which is not going to happen unless I do something ridiculous, although I might, why not? Uh, I'm going to LA tomorrow morning, uh, so I want to get this one last podcast in before I hit the road. Uh, I plan on doing some podcasts from LA. I'm going to have my mic down there and stuff, but... Uh, Honestly, I don't know, and if not, I'll talk to you guys on Sunday about it all. Um, going down to meet my girl, hang out, probably have some meetings, or, or maybe not, I don't know. We'll see. I'm not really going for business, but it's L.A., so there's always a chance. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on Friday. I'm trying to decide, and I'm looking up all these articles online about whether or not I should work out when you're sick, and there's the whole neck check, it's called, where... Uh, if it's above your neck, including a sore throat, um, you are fine to work out as, as far as you feel like. And, uh, you know, maybe mitigate it a bit. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but if it's in your body, which it wasn't for me, then you're probably fine to work out. But then I read this one really good article that just kind of said, you know, yeah, you can. But what about listening to your body? You know, what about just going, hey... Sure, you can go do your cardio or whatever, but what if you just don't? Um, and so it was really great for me because I uh, I chose not to. And this is hard for me because of what I said, like motor's always going. And I said, just tune into your body, man. Listen to, like actually try and listen. And one of my favorite things about listening is the old Marilyn Manson quote from Bowling for Columbine, where you got all these like uh, white guys in suits going, well, what these kids need to understand and what needs to happen with these kids as they're standing, you know, it was filmed pretty brilliantly, uh, as they're standing in front of Lockheed missiles, uh, telling kids how it's the kids' fault that they're into a weapon culture, whether you agree with that movie or not. Uh, for me, the most riveting part of it was when they asked Marilyn Manson, what would you say to these kids? And he goes, I wouldn't say anything. I'd listen. And I thought, okay, what if I try and apply that to myself? Instead of being that, that white slave driver of the little Benz, I go, hey, dude, what do you need? What do you need? And my God, I, ca I, I can't tell you. Like, obviously, I still sound a little rough. I feel so fulfilled right now. 
because I took care of myself this weekend. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the therapy and the this and the that. But for me, fundamental to all this is a notion of self-parenting, which is can I take care of myself when there's no one else to take care of me? You know, Emily's always great about that stuff, but she's away right now. And uh, so ultimately, it's my choice what I'm going to eat. Or am I going to make a chicken noodle soup? Or am I just going to go get like a meatball sub? I want the meatball sub. But sometimes for me, the self-parenting is going, no, man, eat the cucumber and the orange pepper. And and I feel so good right now, partly because I've eaten so well, partly because I've rested. Uh, Still had some work to do and all that, but not a lot. And then partly because, you know, you sort of get a plus two. It's like going to the gym, you know, you you, you don't want to go to the gym, so you don't go. Well, you don't probably lose anything because, okay, you, you didn't. You're not going to lose all your muscle in a day. But there is a minus one in terms of maybe the self-esteem. Uh, it, it, you know, and again, and this is the sort of navigating yourself. Did I, uh, did I need the day off or was I just lazy? For me, I needed the weekend off. So then where that becomes interesting is that becomes a plus. So there's the plus one of resting. There's the other plus one of eating well. But the deeper plus, like more than is quite quantifiable is the fact that I, to myself, have shown myself that I care about myself. Now, that we'll call that self-esteem, I guess, or esteemable acts that ultimately, even if I don't feel self-esteem, my actions, if you were to look at them, are of a guy who cares about himself. And I always say this with my cats. You know, love's an action word, right? So if I sit there and I tell you I love you, but I don't do anything ever, reciprocal with you if I never you know meet you on your terms it's always well I'm gonna be here you can join or uh, you know that sort of thing well that's not really love that sort of allowance or narcissism or whatever so when I'm actually in action and I use my cats as the example I don't really sit and shudder with a sort of dreamy romance about loving my cats but I feed them every day I put out their litter every day. I brush them, not once a week, but close. Uh, You know, so the act, if you remove words, is, yeah, this guy loves his cats. And I do love my cats. I also feel love for my cats, but I think that's secondary. Uh, And I won't even get into all those studies that show that if you sit and stare into someone's eyes and say nice things to them and listen to them as they tell you intimate things about themselves, you can within a day replicate feelings of love. So you're acting your way into a certain kind of feeling or thinking, which is huge because when I was younger, I always used to think, hey, as long as I feel it and think it, it doesn't really matter what I do. And that that goes as deep as like thinking I was a good person But then again, like flaking on everybody or bagging on work or whatever. And uh, that's not, that's that's a version of insanity slash, again, like up one's own assness. Uh, So for me, that's the exciting thing about the self-care I gave myself this weekend. Man, I also feel good because I just ate one of the best meals of my life. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in bed watching The Trip with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. If you haven't seen this treat yourself to it and uh, my recommendation is don't look for the film that was cut from the six initial episodes they did because it's just so rich what they're doing that the episodes I think are are more worthwhile in any case there's the great quote in it uh, that my friend Tom shared with me a while ago which is I celebrated my 20th birthday with alcohol my 30th with drugs 
and uh, my 40th with food. And that has actually been my experience. You know, I started drinking heavily by around 20 or whatever. And then by 30, full-blown, like, hadn't been to bed, uh, you know, strippers in the room and me kind of going, oh, I'm 30 right now. Uh, and then now today, my agent, Kish, uh, direct all inquiries to Kish at Goddard, um, took me out to a place called George. East, East uh, 111 East Queen Street. Let's get that specific because it was that good. And I had some tuna tartare and Cornish hen and then some crazy dessert beignets. Anyways, it was phenomenal. And I don't really eat uh, that kind of food often, but I think I might start. So thanks, Steve Coogan, Rob Bryden, and Kish. You know, something I wanted to talk about here. Uh, I saw a play a while ago, excellent, brilliant play, called The Motherfucker in the Hat or With the Hat. Uh, Diana Bentley, a friend of mine, she, she runs the theater company that did it. And uh, one of the characters in it said something, which he's a very cynical guy, an older guy in the play. And one of the things he said was, somebody said something about being friends. And this character went, meh. Friends are people that you meet before you're 25. After that, it's all acquaintances and colleagues. I'm paraphrasing the line, but that's the idea. And when I heard that, I thought, yeah, aside from the overall cynicism of this character, I think I agree with that. Um, all my best friends I met before 25. And then I started thinking about it, and no, that's absolutely not true. And I want to go even a bit further with this idea. I was thinking of a guy, Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes is a wonderful actor, and he was in Barn Wedding, and we needed a, a, a one last piano track. We're finishing up all the sound for this film uh, when it's about to be shown. I can't tell you where and when yet, but it's soon Toronto people um, and, and neighboring communities. It's going to be unfucking real So this movie's going to play. It's going to be out there, but we needed this piano track that we didn't have a clean track of it because we didn't know we were going to use it the way we decided to in the edit. So I was like, Chris, will you come with me to Guelph? And uh, I wanted a specific sound. It's a piano he'd been playing earlier in the film. So it really mattered to me the tone. Couldn't be electric, and it sh I just didn't want like that. You know, I actually prefer uprights to, to grands. Me and Tom waits. Uh, and uh, I just think there's a jangly kind of thing to it. I grew up on uprights. I, I appreciate the sound more. So Chris comes with me, and this is kind of what I'm getting at. I consider Chris a friend, and more so after yesterday. But Chris and I have never done anything outside of work. You know, he takes my class, and I'm directing a film he's producing, and then he worked on a film I directed. Everything is professional, but so what? And the reason I say so what is this? Uh, by the way, and not that he won't cut, like, you know, he comes to our parties, or we go to his or whatever, but when I was four, Greg Newton, who's my, like, purest of best friends, uh, we talk weekly, if not every couple days, and uh, he stays here all the time. Uh, Master Brewer, by the way, down at the sake brewery at the distillery. So if you're into sake, sake is one of the few things I miss, by the way. I haven't drank in uh, over seven years. I don't really miss wines at dinner. Uh, champagne I used to like a lot, but I don't really ever go, oh, I'd like, but sake is the one thing where I watch other people at sushi restaurants and I go, mm, that's the one I still kind of, you know wish I could pull off. 
wouldn't work for me, but fuck, would it be nice? Um, and by the way, I kind of like the cheap, shitty stuff. Uh, but so Greg, in, in any case, is, is brewing real proper sake. And so he'll stay over here when he does because he lives out of town. So Greg lived on the same block as me. So immediately, our friendship was basically facilitated just by convenience. I mean, I didn't seek Greg out across Guelph. We weren't e-harmonied into a match. He just lived around the corner, you know. He's, uh, he looks like me. He's, he's white, he's four feet tall, and he's into sports. So we play. Um, you know, <laughs> we become friends. Uh, we fought a lot. We obviously stayed in touch over, uh, oh, what, 35 years, 40, uh, 36 years. It's amazing. But the building block of that was proximity and the fact that we did the same kind of stuff. And that's kind of what I'm getting at, whether it's my camp friends. So camp was the binder. I want to go beyond this national park island up on Beausoleil and have these phenomenal summers in the sand, sailing and swimming. And especially for my first couple of years, I didn't really think about the people. I thought about what I got to do. Now, let's say you really get into sailing and then you're sailing a lot. And then the guys who are sailors become your friends because they're the ones you're spending all your time with. And then I had this interesting blip in my 20s where I started, you know, working a lot and also started like drinking and partying a lot. So I was always a little tired. And it was a period of my life where aside from career, I wasn't doing as much. Karate is about the one thing I maintained during that time. Uh, everything else I kind of let go. Wasn't really playing guitar. Wasn't really doing any like active uh, community sports or anything like that. Wasn't really taking many acting classes till a bit later. And, uh, you know, interestingly, if in that sort of five years, other than people I met on sets, I didn't really make any friends because I wasn't doing anything. You know, I sort of had this isolated thing and I started meeting friends for coffees a lot. And what I noticed is after five or ten coffees, well, we didn't really need to meet that much anymore, you know, unless they were willing, by the way, to follow it with a lot of drinks and cocaine. But again, that's because that's what I was actively doing. That, that, that's an action to go do that stuff. So having all these coffee friends started to feel a little weird. Like, why am I just hanging out having coffees all the time? I don't really, like, I like coffee, but I like coffee on the go. Um... And so I started, again in my 30s, doing shit again, forming a band, becoming best friends with Phil and with Kobe and, uh, you know, guys from L.A. And, um, and that's kind of what I'm talking about with Chris, you know. We had such a beautiful day yesterday. It was work-oriented, but it's because we're both doing something we both love together. <clears throat> so who knows? Maybe Chris and I will one day sit and do nothing together maybe we won't it's not that important for me to go no I, I'm meeting and making lots of friends these days and then there's the people I, I, I keep trying to reach out to uh, but circumstance means they're busy I'm busy and as a result we don't get to sort of do anything together and that's always interesting is you know how do you get together with someone when you're doing different stuff like guy dates and uh, in any case I just thought about that because I believed what that quote from that play said I was like yeah I mean, with a few exceptions, like the, you know, the L.A. and Danielle also, who I'd consider best friends. Um, but no, it's, it's actually real easy to make new friends as long as I don't have to put a cap on it. So work is great. It's why wouldn't I meet people doing things I love, uh, doing it with them. Peter's, uh, Peter, my studio partner, is another example of someone who's really becoming more than just a studio partner, more than just someone I did a film with. 
we a friend and it's because we like each other and we like doing things together and that gap bridges pretty easily and I say this because one of my New Year's resolutions was to make more friends and I realized that maybe I have been all along maybe I'm looking for something I have and uh, kind of realized that yesterday it was a real nice feeling you know and again a lot of this came from here it comes you ready cheese alert being willing to be my own friend but I mean that because if I don't fucking give a shit about myself, then how am I really going to be able to give a shit about others? You know, and there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I care more about others than myself or, you know, I, uh, you know, I do it for you, but I have trouble doing it for myself. Now, that for me means they probably need an Al-Anon meeting or a therapist or something. But at the deepest level, I still think they're not doing it for you. If they have an inability to do it for themselves, they're still doing it for themselves <laughs> is kind of what I mean, but in that sort of circular way. And then what I believe gets bred is like resentment. And, you know, I'm doing this for you. Well, if I'm doing something for you and there's no contract, uh, then I'm just doing it for you. But as soon as I'm doing it for you but wouldn't do it for myself, now I think you owe me. And now I've basically taken you hostage uh, with my generosity. Uh, and so I, th I get to claim I'm the good person. Oh, I'm so fucking good. I'll, I'll do for others. But no, no, no. At the expense of myself, that's fine. Um, I, I don't know that those two can go hand in hand. They can't for me. So if I'm not taking care of myself, there's no way in hell that I can offer you anything um approximating real love because I'll constantly be scratching and tugging at you to fill the holes in myself that I'm not willing to fill myself, you know? The whole idea that making you happy is an inside job on me. And, and that's a bizarre thing when you're, you're sitting with a partner and you're like, you need to be happy first. I don't mean every second. I don't mean like that. But obviously, big picture, if I'm not happy, then I can't fucking provide anything. And uh, so again, that, that, that whole idea where I think I'm seeing more friends around me and uh, even having a meeting with my agent where, you know, normally when I sit down with them, I want to talk strategy and what are we going to do? And I'm sitting here going, strategy? It's not like I've got nine projects being offered to me and I need to navigate anything. I audition for good stuff. I book it or I don't. And based on booking, we do it. <laughs> if they pay enough and the schedule works. That's my strategy. So relieving myself of the need to make this thing about something it wasn't was really a nice way to just have a connected, friendly lunch. Now with my agent, obviously business is first, but because business is going well, uh, we can actually just enjoy each other's company and, and surely did uh, as I sit with my Cornish hen belly. You know... Okay, <laughs> so <clears throat> I got a great comment from Bill. So Bill Hornbrook, uh, I've talked about a lot. And uh, Bill, again, another example of somebody who I consider a best friend. And it's from doing with Bill. It's from flying around Laguna Seca for, you know, 12 laps in a row uh, for six sessions over, or maybe eight, eight sessions over two days, uh, within a foot of each other at 130 kilometers an hour, then dropping to 40, or well, miles an hour, and then dropping to 40, dumping over the corkscrew, firing around that big sweeper, and still within a foot of each other's bumpers because there's a trust and inherent. Bill and I did stuff together. 
and our friendship was steeled through that. Now, if Bill was a dick or I was a dick to him, you know, it probably wouldn't have worked out, but you know, we, we, we stealed that through action, which I really love. Bill, uh, at the time was a police officer and, uh, I don't believe he is anymore. I know that he, he quit for a while. But he wrote something to me, and I've heard this from another cop friend of mine. Uh, she'll remain nameless because she hasn't really weighed in on the show, so I don't want to, like, you know, out people who maybe I've had private conversations with. But she said things along the same line. And he just said, you know, a couple holes in your go-after-murders and not speeders theory. And he didn't really want to get into it all because it was a lot to type. So I'm sort of paraphrasing or what he's paraphrased, but talks about the idea about how police have to be reactive and not proactive because you can't really solve a murder until it happens. Uh, so, you know, it's going to be really rare, by the way, except for my kick down the door with jackboots and go, Billy, are you behaving once a year? Because, you know, sometimes there are indicators of the type of person who's a serial perpetrator of stuff. So that's it's funny because later in the thing, he called me a, a not appropriate liberal commie tree hugger, which I don't disagree with, but uh, that's the anti-liberal is the jackboots on the door. But in any case, um, you know, he talks about the idea of the broken windows theory. So this is this idea in New York in the early 90s that uh, the mayor uh, basically said, or was it the chief of police? chief of police, I think, Bratton, uh, said basically that uh, what was going to happen was that like no subway that was graffitied would run um, until it had been repainted. And uh, so the idea behind that is that it would negate the sort of pleasure that people might get from committing crimes or whatever. And it widely has been considered for turning New York around in a lot of ways. And, you know, you see those old like blog photos of the 70s in New York and fuck they look awesome man like or you just gotta watch uh, Taxi Driver and those scenes man like that's a different New York than I've ever visited um, but so in any case it's one of those things where uh, he, he cites that as the idea that in neighborhoods where you basically give more speeding tickets um, all other kind of crimes go down by the way I don't doubt that Okay, I really don't, because what you're basically doing is creating a police presence. Um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. For me, what it has to do with is, for example, uh, because again, and, and this, this other cop friend of mine says something similar, you know, when you're scraping bodies off the highway, you look at things differently. So, of course, I can't disagree with that. Now, the first thing you got to understand about my theories about traffic is that my fundamental basis, like first principles, is that I'm right, you're wrong, you're in my way, you're a bad driver, I'm a good driver, and if I ever do anything wrong, well, I'm fucking human, but if you do anything wrong, you should have your license revoked. So, let's be real clear that, you know, this might not be the most sound basis <clears throat> for creating traffic theory. However, let's assume that that's not totally true. If you, uh, for example, for me, cops with speeding, uh, when a cop is hiding behind a sign, they are doing what I would consider uh, shitty uh, pullovers because they're not interested in slowing down traffic. They're interested in punishing someone for going a little above the speed limit because everybody can be doing 120, you do 124, they get you, and they've been hiding behind a sign. Well, if their goal is to slow everyone down, 
then why aren't they parked out where everyone can see them? Because nobody's going to speed in the right mind by a cop. If that person does, they really should be pulled over because they're probably drunk or on their phone and not noticing a really obvious cop. So that to me is the first example of where it's punitive and not really preventative. Uh, and the other thing is, again, like it's ridiculously unfair in the sense that if you let's say let's let's just say that the head of the insurance companies i promise you is not paying an extra $4000 a year because of 315 overs but i am that's where it gets a little bit ridiculous given that i have no accidents that i've caused none of this kind of stuff um so that's where i actually really do believe what i say and and aside from that whole other people's mistakes but this really gets to me back to um the idea of what we're what we're calling the biggest mistake so bill i agree with you a hundred percent that let's get police in the neighborhoods but what about toning down on the speeding tickets because i really say like i don't know what your experience was out in the cruiser but the speeders don't almost kill me. The speeders aren't the ones cutting me off, so I have to hammer on my brakes and maybe even lay my motorbike down. It's the hazardous drivers. So uh, reckless driving. So fuck, by all means, up the reckless. And I think what would be great about this is you'd have cops. Look, if you're sitting hiding behind a sign um, with your little fucking laser gun, like pure sniper bullshit, and you're just going, eh, pull him over. You're not really part of the deal. You're actually hiding yourself. That's fucking wrong to me. Um, I'm not talking about someone going 200 spinning. I mean, you know, there's there's reason to all of this. I'm talking minors here. Now, if you're going to get reckless driving, you know, infractions, if you're going to pull people for over that... I'm imagining you got to be a little more interactive. Cops on the road, part of traffic. Now, guess what? Look what happens when a cop drives down the 401. Bill, that's our major roadway here. Everybody drives pretty well, pretty slowly off their phones. So now you've got 50, 60 cars who are all driving well, we'll call it, attentively. Actually, people tend to make more mistakes when cops are around because they get nervous. But generally speaking, they're driving better. That to me is amazing. Now, if somebody goes zinging by that cop, yeah, they're sort of retarded. Like, and I don't mean that in a special needs way. I mean, like, pull that person over because they don't get it. We want to get rid of drivers who don't get it. So a driver who's listening, by the way, <laughs> I think there has to be a, like three times a year, you have a get out of a speeding ticket if it isn't crazy. And you can say, look, officer, I'm sorry. But I just had Firework by Katy Perry on, and it got me feeling really fucking good. So if I crept up to 1.30, come on, let me turn. The, and if the cop kind of hears that it's like, baby, you're a fire, or, you know, like Club Can't Handle Me, Flo Rida, try to listen to that song and not get a little excited and put the foot down on the gas. So if the cop kind of goes, you know what? <laughs> I hear that, brother. Uh, that would make me drive a little quicker too. Be on your way and, uh, you know, keep it under uh, 140. I don't know. Anyway, I really believe that. I really believe that. But to me, it has to do with the fact that it's a lot harder to be part of something than just sit back and snipe people. Because I don't doubt, and I don't think it's a bad thing, if cops want to be very present and uh, offer, because that to me is actually what you said they can't do, which is preventative. So if people know that, yeah, there's these visible police out, not fucking hiding under bridges, 
You know, that's what I take issue with. That that actually kind of beginning, middle, and end of it is what I take issue with. It's almost like the parking stuff. When somebody's parked on a street that just arbitrarily says one hour parking instead of like three hours or whatever, it's like, well, that's just a cash grab. But when you're parked on the wrong street at rush hour, and I personally have had this happen and I get towed, no problem, my bad, I get the bigger, like the Spock of that, you know. In that case, the needs of the many actually do outweigh my needs because we're all going to benefit when that doesn't happen. So, so Bill, I'm totally down with you on that. And then uh, I won't get into your auto stuff, but Bill was saying how he knows a lot more Vietnam vets who, who share uh, autos. Uh, a friend of mine who was a Vietnam vet who I said, you know, was the one vet I knew who said it was like the best time of his life. And actually, Bill says four out of five of the vets he knows say the same thing, including one who had uh, had his knee blown all to hell. Um, again, heightened experiences, man. Like, you know, we talk a lot on the show about living fully. And, uh, you know, I, I reference all those mistakes I made and all the crazy time. But I don't know. Only one day out of 20 do I actually feel regret about that. And the rest of it, I feel like... I made the best choice I knew how to on that Tuesday where I did something dumb. Uh, but God, man, <laughs> it's, uh, I'd way rather that than to have never, uh, you know, ventured or done anything. And, uh, I think that's a real important thing. Um, one one more thing, okay, about the, <laughs> the traffic. So if you've ever been to Tokyo, you've got your Shibuya, which is one of the coolest things you're ever going to look at. It's the Shibuya Crossing. And basically, um, you I, I think I was even at like a Starbucks up on the third floor. This was so tranquil because basically... Cars are allowed through this intersection. It's a multi, multi, you know, more than just two directions of traffic. And cars for like four minutes or five minutes will cross while pedestrians build up but aren't allowed to cross anywhere. And then all the lights will go red and pedestrians can go in any direction they want. And I swear to God, it's like watching uh, waves. It's like a bizarre version of watching waves on a... Uh, you know, balcony in Kona, Hawaii. Uh, it, it's that lovely. And it's so cool because it's human, you know. It's got a bit of that Baraka feel to it. But without any, for me in any case when I was doing this, there was no sense of like being guided to think something. So in Baraka they show you a bunch of little uh, chickens getting their beaks fused shut and then humans in turnstiles. So the immediate implications feel way different than when I'm just enjoying a coffee in, in Tokyo watching this crossing. But Toronto fucks it up. Oh, my God, have they fucked it up. People, if you're listening, I know you're going amen because Young and Bloor, Bay and Bloor, and Young and Dundas have what are called scramble crossings. They're, they're four ways or two-way, you know what I'm saying, east, west, north, south. And basically, these scramble crossings should function like Shibuya. So what they should do is cars can go all the time. And then all the lights go red and pedestrians, because the point of the scramble is you can cross on the angle. It's, it's revolutionary. It's great. The problem is, is that while, let's say, I'm allowed to go east-west, so are pedestrians on either side of the street. So now, especially at Bay and Bloor, you basically, if you're going eastbound, good luck turning south, turning right, because there's pedestrians at all times crossing that thing. So now you got this massive backlog of traffic all the way to Spadina, and then forget about your left turn, same deal, one car maybe, and they're basically running a red to do it, uh, 
and then pedestrians get to cross anyways. In other words, it totally defeats the scramble crossing, but it's this, like, who fucked that up? Who said, like, it actually makes traffic worse and pedestrians get about a 30-second benefit. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes, and I find this with cyclists, like I'm a biker, I'm a cyclist. I'm more of a cyclist than a commuter, though. So I will go out cycling. By the way, in Toronto, I'll do 30K in the mornings or whatever in the city. Um, And I find that cyclists who commute can be pretty fucking arrogant. And I support bicycles. I think everybody should ride bikes instead of cars when possible, even if I don't. But it's to be aware of it as a healthy, amazing, like, whatever. Um... But it's the same thing with pedestrians where somehow there's there's this hierarchy. Like if you're a pedestrian, you, I don't mean in terms of accidents. I mean, you're somehow, you, you should have greater rights. But the thing about traffic is traffic's not just cars. It's how a city works. And you know, Toronto, I don't think functions real well. Traffic is ridiculous. And when you add in the TTC streetcars and when you add in these ridiculous scramble crossings at the busiest intersections, this is where they would help most if they worked right. I don't understand who thought that basically clogging up traffic more was benefiting anybody. And and as far as the pedestrians go, because I've heard people go, well, cars shouldn't have right away all the time. It's like, no, they don't and shouldn't. You're right. But by the way, idling is the worst cause of pollution for cars. Cars should be functioning at a proper RPM. I mean, I'm not talking racetrack RPMs, but you don't want to be sitting there idling. So the more cars that are sitting there idling... In fact, the more shitty air the pedestrians are breathing. So I just want to put that out there because that's a real ball drop. And I wonder if that's ever going to get fixed, you know, or is that just going to function badly? But somebody's like uh, pointing to that as like, and we care about our pedestrians, so we have scramble crossings. And it's like, yeah, nobody's winning there, actually. That's uh, really nobody's winning there. The city is running worse now for that. Man, I got some fire in my belly today. It must be the fact that I feel okay for the first time in, in five days. And uh, I got that good good meal in my belly. Um, by the way, we had a question last time. And I, I can't remember who asked it. But it was a great question. And somebody asked, you know, because I play in a band called Emmy Rouge. And uh, check it out, YouTube. Lots of videos up there. You can buy Emmy Rouge music on iTunes. And... Uh, I played in bands all in L.A., and uh, th- these these bands are great for me because we actually gig, we actually play, we get paid for the gigs, um, but none of them are, like, massively successful or anything like that. Um, but if I can come at a head, you know, a dollar a head, and support my band hobby, uh, that's a pretty phenomenal thing. And then the question was, I think it might have been Jackie Smith or Goose, who said, you know, how, uh, how, do you, how do you find that balance? And also, what are your favorite musicians turned... Uh, actors or vice versa I love this question Uh, what a great question so for the most obvious one to me because I think he's done it the best is Jared Leto Jared Leto Um, you know 30 seconds to Mars I don't actually really like the band I can't listen to it Uh, but I don't think it's shitty it's just not for me and he just did this video about something to do with LA and the video was cool and it evoked a bit of stuff but it felt a little bit on the nose but he's really got a real thing going there. And I think he's one of the people who's really, like, he's a phenomenal actor. Uh, he's really been able to bounce. Like, he really went and did the band thing. He really didn't take roles for a while. So it wasn't like he was, 
pretending that the band was just a hobby, but the reality is the band sucked and it wasn't going anywhere. It's more like, no, we had a real opportunity with this band and life's what it is. You know, I didn't move back to Toronto for probably an extra two years because of the band Analog Smith. And we were, uh, we were getting possible labels, interest and all that kind of thing. And it never panned out for us. But I'm so glad that even though I could have come back to Toronto and worked as an actor more, how many times are you going to be in L.A. playing up and down the strip and all that stuff uh, at a certain age? You know what I mean? Like there's 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 a window. And even us, I, th- I think I, I personally, I think it was a bit late for me. Uh, tell that to Kevin Rinkin, whose phenomenal band Goldsboro is opening for Guns N' Roses all over the place, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's something that started, you know, he wasn't 21 when that band started. Uh so obviously it's doable. Uh, Kevin's way more talented than I'll ever be as an, a musician and, and a producer. So uh, I think that helps. But, you know, uh, I think he's one. For me, I actually want to go the other way. How fucking amazing I love David Bowie. When David Bowie acts, it's sublime. And I know for myself, I always book more work or uh, do a better job working when I'm actually a hint less invested in it. And I think it has to do, again, if I'm super invested, I'm probably worried about being good, or I probably think it might parlay into something. And I'm probably waiting the human moments of the script or the the scene too much for what it really is. And when you get someone like David Bowie or Mick Jagger, these guys got all the money they need. They got all the adulation they need. And by the way, <coughs> the David Bowie is exhibit. Uh, when you watch, like his mime stuff before he was famous. This guy's a performer. He's not just a singer. I mean, there's so obviously, obviously, I mean, it's David Bowie. And and if you don't really know David Bowie and like the Thin White Duke and Ziggy Stardust and, you know, Aladdin Sane, like, go look at this stuff. Uh, by the way, amazing. Obviously, everybody's talking about it. Annie Lennox at the Grammys. Fuck me. I mean, Wow, this to me is, (laughs) you've got uh, people who navigate the business well, you know, and then you've got people who are talented, but also have like a a product, you know, and I'll, I'll include someone like Taylor Swift in that, like Taylor Swift, I love, I really love this new album of hers, I love all her stuff, I've always been a fan of Taylor Swift, but I don't think Taylor Swift can do what Annie Lennox did. And nobody's feeling sorry for Annie Lennox that she doesn't have Taylor Swift's $250 million because uh, Annie Lennox is amazing and successful in her own right. But every young artist who doesn't like write and create and, and have the ability to hold a stage like that must have watched that Grammy performance and gone, well, cry. They must have gotten like scared. Like, that's how good it was. It was scary good what she did. And part of the reason I mentioned that is because, you know, I posted on Facebook that performance with uh, with Bowie. I think it was 1992 when they did the, uh, the Freddie Mercury benefit. And, uh, you know, she sings the Freddie Mercury part. And I don't actually think she sang it as good as Freddie Mercury, but she performed it brilliantly. It's just Freddie Mercury and it's, you know, it was written for male or whatever, but... She's got the eye makeup and and then, you know, you go back to the the arrhythmic stuff and this is just someone who knows actually how to do what they do. They haven't been packaged, which doesn't mean there aren't choices made to stimulate or or be creative. That's, That's a bit different than just being packaged, you know. Packaging is almost like focus group stuff, whereas when you're performing, you know, but I don't know that Bowie went around with, uh, 
you know, like a focus group thing and went, so uh, do you think it would be cool if I dressed androgynously and painted half my face or would it be cooler if I just let my hair grow out and did the hippie rock thing like Zeppelin? No, that never happened. That was an artist guiding himself. And uh, I think the tides turned, but at one point Bowie was the richest performer in the world because he'd actually like... uh, did an IPO on himself or something against future earnings or whatever. I don't know that that panned out. I'm sure it's still Paul McCartney. But uh, there's rewards <coughs> to being that brilliantly good at what you do without always, you know, uh, needing it to be a Twitter, Instagram, uh, I don't know, Facebook. Does anyone even use Facebook anymore except for me? Uh Facebook-worthy kind of thing. <laughs> so uh, I wonder when Justin Timberlake's going to try and revitalize Facebook. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure stock prices are through the roof and stuff. I just know a lot of people I know are like way into like Snapchat and 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 Instagram uh, instead. Chris Martin, what is the best way to get from Coldwater and Ventura to Venice Beach? Oh, well, I can tell you my favorite way. My favorite way is basically to kick up to the 101 and then take the 101, uh, you know what? Are we in a hurry? Because this is the question. If we're in a hurry, I'm probably going to drop down cold water, maybe all the way to Venice. You know what I mean? Like pop down through. I'm, I'm probably missing some zigs and zags there through like Century and that kind of thing. Um, but for me, what I'd want to do is take the 101 all the way up to like Canaan Road or, or that kind of thing. And then just go all the way down to the PCH and pop back down. That's what we used to do on the motorbikes on Sunday mornings. And uh, so that's going to take you three hours in traffic. I still think it's going to be your best way. By the way, I'm going to be down in L.A. Uh, so maybe I'll test that out with Emily, Chris. And then if uh, if I do a car cast, which uh, is probably how we're going to do L.A. podcasts is while we're driving. Me and Emily will do some co-hosting things. Uh, <laughs> but thanks for your question. Um, guys, I'm going to leave that there. You know, i got to teach a class tonight. i got to get packed. Uh, but thanks for joining me. By the way, again, uh, our listenership is growing here. And that's a really cool thing for me. And I just love the interactions we're having. So I think that's really great. And... Um, Barn Wedding's going to be, I'm going to be announcing a bunch of stuff about that soon online and all that stuff. So thanks for joining me. I'm going to go take a little bit more uh, erythromycin or whatever whatever antibiotic I got and eat a big meal before class. And uh, we'll chat with you next from LA, everybody. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on Chatting Between Takes. <laughs>